Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we want to welcome you back to the show and back to current issues and focusing on what's going on locally, around the state, around the nation, and in the world on a weekly basis. And this week, I want to welcome to the studio Dr. Marcy Reynolds, who's with us here as faculty at Tarleton State, Assistant Professor of Political Science, also a colleague, as we've talked about before when we've had uh, her and and Casey Thompson on with our roundtables in terms of writing a new Texas government book that focuses on public policy and democratic engagement. So I'm always glad to have her on the show. And so welcome, Marcy. Glad to have you with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we wanted to let everybody know as well as we start the show that if uh, you can listen weekly, you already know that if you're listening right now, but we're also streaming at tarletonradio.com. Uh, there are podcasts available wherever you get those, as well as SoundCloud. So if you miss any portion of this show or you'd like to go back and listen to previous shows, you can go to SoundCloud, and that's On Politics with Eric Morrow. So I want to start the show out today first. Uh, I, I surprised Marcy when we got in the studio this morning and said, well, last night I was able to moderate uh, the debate, uh, or I should say candidate forum. It was not really a debate, and that might have been a, a good thing in this environment. In uh, the city of Granbury, they're having a special election coming up in a few weeks uh, to uh, finish the mayoral term. So the current mayor had resigned and then also to fulfill a place on the city council. And so as in preparation for the special election, the Chamber of Commerce in Granbury hosted a candidate forum at the high school. And the forum, uh, I was able to moderate that forum, which was was really engaging uh, and, and helpful in terms of affirming some of the ways that we can do uh, uh, democratic engagement, some of the ways that we can conduct ourselves and being able to have an informed discussion or presentation to voters, to constituents, so that they can learn more about candidates. And I had heard that the previous one had been an open session with the candidates on the stage and people asked questions from the audience. And that that was not uh, the outcome of that was not uh, uh, that great because of the people, I think, talking over each other and and things, some things kind of getting out of hand in terms of trying to address actual issues. So uh, uh, I worked with the chamber to really structure this in a way that let the candidates speak about themselves and about the issues. We had questions that had been prepared in advance that had been sent to the candidates. And then we took some questions from the audience as well uh, that were written. And then I went through them and tried to pick out some of the ones that were uh, either things we hadn't talked about or were uh, other issues related to concerns that the people had. Uh, we had a good turnout. Uh, it, it went well. We had scheduled an hour and a half and we finished right at an hour and a half. Uh, so that was amazing as well. And we were able to get through three rounds of questions for each group, four candidates for mayor, three for city council, and then also a uh, opening statements for two of two minutes, two of the questions from the audience, which I kind of combined some because there were similar issues, and then a one-minute closing statement by each candidate. So that was amazing to be able to accomplish all of that. And the response of people, I talked to several people as I was leaving uh, what, that had attended the, the last debate that they had was that we were able to listen, we could hear what the candidates uh, had to offer, uh, where, what their position was on certain critical issues. And so, and even the candidates themselves, they saw it as a, a as a, a great opportunity to be able to offer uh, their message, to engage with the people that were there. Of course, as we know, studying elections and looking at this, that turnout is critical for special elections, right? Who, whoever gets the turnout is going to win. And, and so I just wanted to mention it because I thought, I wanted to show that and help people understand that we can do this in a way where we can still have discussion, debate. We still can engage with critical issues. Yes, it it, it probably needs to be structured. I mean, this showed last night that it, it could be done and be done successfully and, and really help the people uh, 
get what they need to make their decisions and, and know what they're going to do when they go to vote on the special election day. I think this is something that we try to instill in our students here with the town hall program that we do and other of our programs that focus on the American Democracy Project. But I, uh, I wanted to, to bring this uh, up and bring it to the attention of our listeners, and I'll be probably talking about it for months to come, uh, because we need more things like this. We need more people willing to engage and spend the time to structure within our communities these kinds of, of discussions and debates that are productive, that do allow people to get more background and, and more information. What we saw last night was something that was very contrary uh, to uh, what we've seen uh, in the nation and around the country and even in, in our local areas as well uh, in the past. And I think this is something that we have to advocate for to uh, and, and help with. I mean, I, I saw it as an opportunity, a service opportunity to, to be there, to help be a part of this and knowing how beneficial to the community uh, that it was. And so I don't know, Marcy, I, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but I don't know that we've seen other things like this. I would hope that communities around the state and, and around the country are looking at ways. But I think this is something maybe in higher education, something that uh, an opportunity that we have uh, to demonstrate some of these things and to collaborate as well in trying to bring these uh, the, the value of civil discourse, the value of uh, of re respect, right, for the, can the candidates at least have enough respect. And I saw this last night, whether they like each other or not, uh, they held for the most part to the time constraints. They We had a clock with a, a screen so they could see when their time was up. Uh, to me, it just it was a bright moment in the midst of the challenges that we're seeing in our country in terms of polarization and uh, discord and people shouting over each other and not willing to have constructive uh, engagement with the issues that are there and presenting themselves uh, as they should to the people, right? Communicating with the people. Um, I, have you seen other things uh, going on like this or have you heard or are we just an island here in terms of civility <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of a state in the country? Well, that is a really good question. And from my experience, um, I have seen this civil discourse going on within parties. So going to party forums, I see this often happens where it is civil, but it's also very specific to that side of the ideological spectrum. Mm -hmm. right. So this is really exciting, your recounting of this forum. Because in my mind, it, it brings up you know the town hall meeting you know at the very right. beginning of our country's history and kind of that that ideal that we were built on with the democratic discourse and talking to each other and coming to some kind of resolution rather than you know separating and finger pointing. It, it seems to me is what that calls to mind. So that we're actually focused in on the issues rather than the candidates so much and. Um, various other ways to you know to promote our side while maybe denigrating the other side what this is exciting to hear about and I agree with you in institutions of higher education this is a goal for us as well because ideally institutions of higher education should bring forth a lot of diverse voices mm -hmm. together to speak to each other and to have discussions in class or maybe some kind of forum on campus where we can talk to each other about the issues and, it, I don't know, uh, just maybe not come to an agreement, but at least better understand other perspectives and that it's not always one way or another, but there are some other complexities to issues that mm -hmm. we might not be thinking about. Well, it, it encouraged me because uh, several months ago I'd had a faculty member from the University of Texas history professor on talking about these types of forums within communities. Where is space that we can have s civil discourse, right, where we can talk about mm -hmm. the issues? And, and, and another thing on this, it was very clear last night it was focused on the issues. They, uh, they didn't attack each other. Uh, we had one opportunity where one of the candidates uh, asked uh, a sitting uh, council member about a particular issue and wanted more clarification. And so we went into a rebuttal 
uh, a segment uh, with that and allowed all the candidates uh, to speak uh, to that specific issue and have a, a rebuttal uh, period. That even went well. And, and I was just sitting here going, wow, we can we can pause the format for a moment and, and allow for something like this. And it's focused on issues. Mm-hmm. It's not focused on uh, name calling and uh, how uh, a bad person you are. And, and then the rebuttal is, well, you're worse than I am yes. and so on. Uh, but uh, back to what I initially saying that we were talking uh, several months ago about the issue in Parker County with the Confederate statue and the problems that were going on there, the different sides that were forming and the concerns about violence and what might happen in, in all of this and asking the question, where can you bring these sides together? And, mm-hmm. and, and I know sometimes you're just not able to, right? There's, there are people who are unwilling to participate uh, in discourse that is civil and trying to work toward solutions with this. They're so entrenched. Uh, they're so uh, they're, they're using their freedom of speech and their freedom of engagement to say, well, this is what should happen, and I'm limiting the, the free speech and the free engagement of other people, right? We, we don't have that opportunity to come together, so it makes it very difficult. You, it's very difficult to find that space, and one of the things that we focused on were, was, well, churches, right? Hopefully, if religious groups could get more involved, not in a partisan way, but in a way to encourage uh, discourse that is civil and, re- and respectful, where people can come together, talk about critical issues. We know we do that in higher ed. That's what we do in the classroom. We do it through our uh, various programs. We do it as faculty because we don't all agree and see issues the same way. Uh, but this gave me hope that there are civic forums, right? Mm-hmm. So here was something that was sponsored by the Chamber of Commerce, so somewhat of a neutral organization. There were a lot of questions focused on economic issues because Granberry is growing and there's challenges that come with that growth. And so the focus was on how uh, each candidate saw the growth and how the city could accommodate that. I thought, wow, this this could work. We, we need more organizations like this that are strong civic organizations. I know we, we see around us some of these groups are diminishing in number and struggling and so on, but it, but it would be great if we could see that role of multiple organizations, not just a chamber of commerce or, or whether it's you know religious groups or not that are trying to encourage dialogue that could help lead the way in this and that it could be, it can be accomplished. And, and once people experience it, I think now that the people who were there, and it was a good turnout last night, have experienced this, they're not going to want to go back to the other. They're not going to want to go back to a forum where you've got people talking over each other and nothing really gets said other than uh, whether it's insults or uh, that they can't hear because somebody's talking over somebody else. Uh, I think it shows the way that things could be done. Now, we do know these things can get out of hand, too, right, if if the candidates are not willing to participate. I mean, we can go back to our last presidential election, and we saw a debate that just several, I think, that got out of hand uh, because the two uh, participants were not able to uh, maintain a level of civility uh, to be able to focus substantively on uh, on issues. So I think it's it's the right mixture of things, but I think we've got to keep trying. And so this, I just wanted to bring this up because it, it really was an example of how things can be done in a, in a productive way that gets back to what candidates should be talking about and what they should be engaging in. And, and yes, it took a lot of time to prepare, but the benefit to the people who were there was tremendous. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm just hoping that w- we can see a way forward with this. How do we... Uh, how, how do we encourage more of this? Uh, and I think higher, higher ed is a way in which we can do that in engaging with, with communities, but it may also be demonstrating this to our students uh, as well as working with community partners like we did last night. Tarleton's a regional state institution. We have a lot of communities around us, uh, some that are growing very rapidly and becoming larger. Uh, this is the kind of thing that that needs to happen to uh, help both the community deal with with political processes 
as well as discussion about critical issues that are impacting them. So uh, uh, this is something for our future discussion, I think ideas, right, of how we can, how can we do this? How can we be more involved uh, in this way uh, in helping to encourage uh, that uh, civil discourse that I think aligns so well with what we do with the American Democracy Project and how we're trying to teach our students responsibility, engagement, civility, right? Taking those values of, uh, of our shared humanity, our re- respect, dignity, and bringing those into political discourse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And one thing I appreciate about that too is you're also um, improving and informed voters. You're also giving them information that they need to make an informed choice. And with the unfortunate diminishing of our local newspapers Mm-hmm. and more reliance on online news, and that just puts you into a whole different forum where you're looking at all different kinds of issues at all different kinds of levels. This kind of discussion really brings it down to our community level. And I think that's so important for us to un- better understand what's going on in our communities because we don't have the sources of information like we used to have. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. right. Now, that was very evident last week, and I know we don't have time in this segment today, but last week I was at the Texas Press Association Convention, which uh, is very much focused on community journalism. The Texas Newspaper Foundation that uh, is associated with the Press Association funds our Center for Community Journalism here on the Tarleton campus. And so uh, seeing the d- disparity, right, there, there are community newspapers that are excellent they're they're maintaining circulation they're looking at other media ways of using media to connect with people who may choose to get their information through the internet or youtube or however it may be and trying to make sure that community news information is getting out but then there's a lot of communities that those newspapers have declined mm-hmm. and they've they've become less and less that source of reliable consistent information and 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 I think that's a challenge again I think that's working against what we saw last night uh, it's fortunate that Granberry their newspaper has uh, been reinvigorated and they uh, it, it does carry mostly local news and information and circulation has increased there I've met with the publisher there and we've talked about um, uh, different uh, things about how that's happening but that's not the norm right. and and it's sad to see that uh, and, and so we've got to find ways as we're working with community journalists right to help maybe be a part of that resurgence of local news and information on the other side we need I think forums like this mm-hmm. that are informative that engage people uh, and, and also and I'll, I'll mention this because I think it's also it's related is that uh, the community newspapers sometimes are limited in how far into the fray that they go, right? They, they, they don't want to, they want to appear neutral. They want to make sure they're covering things. That becomes a challenge sometimes in smaller communities, right? It depends on who, what, everybody knows everybody. It's, it, it, and not to say that we, we've got a lot of journalists out there who are trying to do their best to cover these things and get information to people who may not be able to be at a city council meeting or a school board meeting and so forth. Uh, but, uh, but it is a more challenging environment. And sometimes they're a little, I think, hesitant in some ways to, uh, the, in walking that line and not appearing to favor one person over another. Uh, so hopefully we can see some of that change. I think forums like this help because then they can report on something as it's presented, right, and and try to do it in a way that shows that neutrality and helps to present candidates to voters and the issues uh, in the way that they're they're offered and presented in forums like this. And that's a really good point. Also, I appreciate your point about these social groups that used to be very strong. And we've seen you know, fewer people joining those groups, um, well, not social, but also people who really do contribute to the community who might offer the forum uh, that you were speaking of earlier besides you know, the local chamber of commerce. Uh, one I, I hope I can mention by name is the League of Women Voters, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And they do a really good job of just sending out questions to candidates and having the candidates answer the questions and then they present the information. But the thing is how many people are joining the League of Women Voters anymore? 
And right. yet, so that's one avenue that could be used in order to get that information out. Um, and also if you know, to provide some kind of forum for the candidates to talk about the issues. Sure. I, I see this as another initiative to consider with the American Democracy Project is as we go back to higher ed and talk about these groups who may not have that experience in navigating a political forum like this. So is that our role to try to help provide them guidance, put out direction, be involved, uh, like I had that opportunity last night, so that we can help them do this, help them accomplish something, and then see how it's done, see how they can still have this role uh, that's, uh, that's very critical uh, to, as we refer to in the literature, a thriving democracy, right? You, you, you can't thrive if it's always mired in uh, discord and it's uh, people not respecting each other, not providing the space for people to share their views and positions on things. Mm-hmm. It's almost like I saw this in the, on the issue of teaching religion in public education, right? You can, you can teach about religion, but what happened was with many of the cases, that First Amendment cases and others that would come up, the challenge like school prayer and all of these things, is you had people choose, okay, we're just going to stay away from it altogether. And that's what I, I, I think we're seeing with civic groups that used to be very much involved in providing these forums and offering the community opportunities to engage in this way is that because our environment is so polarized and so partisan at times, especially on a national level, and then, and then we've seen the impact of that on the state level as well, it comes down to the local level, right? Where even a nonpartisan election, such as mayor or city council, in many places you see people identifying with party, with saying I, I'm, an, I'm a conservative or I'm a progressive or however they they want to identify because that then resonates, even though, uh, yes, that ideology may have some impact on how they view local government and its role engaging with issues. But when you get down to potholes and sewers and things like that, I mean, that we think that we know are responsibilities that have been delegated to local government. It's about uh, analysis of data. It's about communication with constituents. It's about the skills and the and the uh, understanding of the issues at the local level uh, that's critical to those positions. Uh, and so, so I think those are areas that that we may be able to provide more support and help uh, to in, in in communities within our region. Uh, to uh, engage those groups again, mm-hmm. right? Let's 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 do this. We can we can manage it, right? We can provide those opportunities and and allow for great discussion and and not let this get off the rails uh, and be something that people are want to say in the future. Well, we're just not even going to do that at all, and thus they're going to the polls without that more extensive knowledge of who the people are who are putting themselves forward for public service and for uh, elections. So I don't know if that's a new project for us. We we don't seem to have enough to do right now. Uh, <laughs> but, no. Uh, but no, and some of my students have brought that up, actually. Mm-hmm. A number of students have. You know, why can't we talk about the issues anymore? Mm-hmm. And it does seem like on a national level, and it's kind of trickled down to the state and maybe even local communities, where you have to pick a team, mm-hmm. you know, and... As you may know, my dissertation was on Common Cause, which was founded in 1970. It was declared itself to be a nonpartisan organization. But over time, they had to pick a side and in order to get funding, basically, right. is what I found. And um, so perhaps there is a swinging back a little bit away from that where people are ready to you know, talk about the issues again and maybe willing to work with another side and hear their perceptions instead of you just have to pick a team and stay on that side. Right, right. Well, we'll, we'll hope for the best and we'll see where yeah. we can help and try to engage more in this way and maybe can be of benefit, especially to the communities in our region here where we can go and uh, it, uh, I think part of the benefit last night, I, I'm not a resident of the city of Granbury, uh, so I'm not voting. Uh, I'm not choosing uh, between anyone here. Uh, that was the concern about fielding the questions from the audience was that uh, uh, I needed to do that. I, I could uh, uh, 
screen those and then the, the repercussions, right? Okay, I, I'm, I live in Stephenville. Somebody wants to get mad at me because I didn't ask their question. But I think we handled that well. At least we haven't had any complaints about, oh, my question didn't get asked. And there were some of the questions had nothing to do with mayor or be, being mayor or city council person. So anyway, overall, I, I think it, it just was a, a very excellent example of the way that this can still be done mm-hmm. uh, in our in the environment that we're in and maybe in some small way get us back moving in the direction where we can have uh, discourse and, and dis- this discussion engagement with candidates in a productive way mm-hmm. and, and not otherwise. Uh, let's turn to elections. So I, I wanted to get to this because this is an area that you've been researching. Uh, you, you did a, a chapter for the textbook that looks at the history of elections and or how we do them in Texas. And it's, it's great because to have you on because I've been talking about the uh, what happened in this last legislative session with the proposed bill that would place more restrictions on local election administrators and how elections are carried out. And I put that in light of what's happening. We saw this in Oklahoma. We saw it in Georgia. And there were other states as well that were looking at and, and some were successful in changing their election laws in response to what happened with the outcome of the presidential election. So, which we know became very partisan. Uh, There were people in in states who were not happy with the outcome, and they were looking to their state leaders to say, okay, what happened here? Because the assumption was that this only could have happened if there was widespread fraud or uh, lack of integrity with the election system itself. So somebody was to blame, right? So this became very political very, very quickly, uh, even though the, as we've seen in previous elections for, for decades, the, the actual evidence of, of fraud, the actual uh, uh, data is just is not there to support that there was a widespread fraud and really, uh, we have to be careful here because the blame, I think, and in, in the, the focus was not so much on people were out there doing uh, things that were in uh, the intent was to undermine the election. It was the processes that were in place that allowed for either people to vote who should not have voted or I think some of it is, and this is not stated, is that, well, the more opportunities you provide to vote, the more people are going to vote, right? And so if you can control that, especially as you, if you, as you see demographic change around the country, then if you can limit the number of people voting, that can favor one group or the other. It just depends on where you are and what state you're in. Uh, Democrats are not as much focused on this because they were successful in the election in terms of getting control of the White House and and control of Congress. So their attention is not on this, and thus they became the the, kind of the focal point of saying, okay, well, we must have had issues here with people who favored Democrats or uh, those who were sympathetic or those who were anti-Trump or so forth. So so this has become entangled in so many things. And, and the point that I've made with this is that it the politics and the partisanship of it does not really look at the practical issues of, of delivering elections, fair, free uh, elections that are uh, uh, safe, secure, that are carried out and are accurate. Uh, and that's not what lawmakers are focused on. They're, they're looking at how they can respond to their constituents saying, I did something about this, or I tried to, right, as in the case of Texas. So I wanted to get your your perspective on this to see what your thoughts were about in this debate on some calling it election security, others voter suppression. Again, I'm landing in the middle here of what can we do to carry out elections, but that also maintains a level of election integrity. Right. Well, that is a great question. I think a lot of it comes down to who has the power to decide how elections are going to be administered. And 
in our constitution and our statutes here in Texas, we have certain requirements for those county elections administrators that they must follow. But it doesn't tell them everything. All right. And I like to use the image of an interstice, which is, you know, a stockade wooden fence around your backyard is has slats. But in between the slats, there's a space. And that's the interstice. And so in our Constitution and our statutes, there's a lot of room for these county administrators to make decisions pertinent to their location. And if you think about Texas or many other states, you, know, you have these urban counties and then you have rural counties with different populations, uh, different people in charge of the elections, because oftentimes you have the county judge who's elected and you have a county clerk who's elected. Um, so there's different interpretations of the interstice and how much authority do they have mm-hmm. to administer the elections. And going back to, you know, how we look at the president and their decisions, they can be strict constructionist where you've got to follow the law exactly, or they can be loose constructionist where, well, if it doesn't say I can't do it, then I'm going to do it. And so this is an issue, I think, that the legislation that the Texas legislature is trying to get passed or did try to get passed is seeking to address to make it more clear and more structured how these county elections administrators can have an election or what they can do for the election. So that's a question I think that we need to consider, you know, how much do we want them standardized? Especially, right. yeah, when you've got these counties like Harris County that covers a land territory bigger than Rhode Island that has, I think about 7 million people living in it, mm-hmm. you know, versus right. here in Erath County which we have a little over a thousand square miles and we have maybe 40,000 or so people living here in vastly different locations and characteristics in those two counties. So would a one size fits all approach work um, is, is the question I think. And also though, in 2020, we had this exceptional circumstance with the COVID-19 pandemic prior to vaccinations being widely available, so people were very concerned about voting. So then that led to these county administrators thinking about their populations and the population's concerns and reacting to that. And, and that was different. It was, it was not one size fits all across the state. So yeah, um, that I think is the bottom line. And I agree with you that it is a way to address constituents' concerns about the integrity of elections. And, you know, some of the things that happened in Harris County in 2020 include 24-hour voting. They had eight locations that offered people 24-hour voting. And this really did serve the people who were in that county who worked strange hours. You know, some of the polls were by hospital. And so nurses and people who work at hospitals have weird you know, hours and shifts. So they appreciated it. And this is what I read in the paper. Over 10,000 people used those polls, those 24-hour polling locations. So it did serve people in that county. But one of the things that the legislature tried to prohibit was that, actually. Right. Yeah, within right. Senate Bill 7, which was ultimately um, dead because of the Democrats leaving the House the last day of the session. They um, right. could not, yeah, so they couldn't get it passed. Um, so... I think they are trying to tamp down on that and to limit that. So they have specific hours that you can be open. So you no more 24 hours. And then also on Sundays was an issue because a lot of people had, you know, carpools and caravans to the polls from church. And now they're saying that polls cannot open until 1 p.m., which would interfere with that is the argument. So that, again, we're standardizing the elections, but at what cost? And so I think, as you say, it is a way for some of the legislators to say, look, you know, we addressed this issue with this proposed bill that was ultimately successful. We'll see if it comes back up for a special session or maybe in 2023. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and I want to come back after that and talk about a couple of the points you made. Uh, One, in, in looking at this, because they're in, in how you described it, it leaves room for both sides, right? In talking about election security, voter suppression, 
uh, I'm not sure that that we actually get down to the the data and and the practical application of that. And I think that's where the discussion should be uh, and be informed. Uh, but uh, my perception of that and, and what I've read and looked at is that's not where it's happening. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll go a little bit deeper uh, on this issue. I'm Rissa. I'm Taylor. And we are the, the Music, Music Business, Business Babes. Babes. Music Business Babes is a music-based bi-weekly podcast where we answer tough industry-related questions, discuss updates in the industry, provide insight from our own personal experiences, and share fun stories along the way. You can catch the show by searching for Music Business Babes or Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and in the studio today, we're glad to be back in the studio. This is great to be able to... See and discuss uh, in person with uh, our interviewees and uh, have them here on campus. And of course, our always able and uh, competent uh, producer here, Taylor, is always at the board here, making sure that everything goes the way it should, and make sure that I don't rustle my papers. So she has to edit that out of the of the show. But we're talking with Dr. Marcy Reynolds, assistant professor of political science, who has spent some time focusing on voting and elections in the state of Texas. And so getting back to where we were before the break, where I think the level of discussion has to go is down to the practical aspects of election security on the one hand. So what are the ways in which we can facilitate elections but ensure their integrity? Mm -hmm. So if there are other methods uh, and things that were employed during COVID, drive-through, different hours, 24 hours, opening the polls earlier, uh, all of these options. Of course, a lot of focus was put on voting by mail, right? And, And in Texas, we have a fairly a challenging system to to do that so integrity there is is it's very difficult to get around that in a mass way that would have an impact on the election um and we know that voting by mail across the state uh if if it was expanded would be challenging as well because just of the cost and the time that it takes especially in urban areas to process those we saw that in other states where they only counted the votes by mail on election day, whereas Texas starts, as soon as they start coming in, they start looking at them, right, and and processing them. So Texas didn't have that difficulty in getting their results out like Georgia or Pennsylvania and some other states. Uh, The other side of it, though, is if you can ensure the integrity of an election, which is the role of the state, right, and local administrators, then is it really voter suppression if you don't facilitate people being able to vote, like we're looking at this one-size-fits-all. In a county like Erath, where they had multiple polling locations, they had uh, early voting open for a long period of time, as it was allowed by the, the state. Uh, in my participation in it, things were very smooth, people were well-trained, and I, again, I think all of this is the responsibility of the state and local administrators to, to handle that. But Uh, at times here, you have to look at that voter suppression side, right? If the state's doing their job, and I can understand there's a line at some point, we can't do everything to permit voting, right? So my my joke in my classes a lot of times has been, hey, one of these days it'll be like you're playing your Xbox and all of a sudden it pops up saying, hey, you need to vote. Uh, And okay, we're never going to be there, right? What we saw and what we've seen in terms of uh, hacking into systems that uh, at some point could have had the potential to influence outcomes uh, by, by uh, uh, foreign powers and so on, we're always going to have to have a break in there. There's going to have to be, like we saw here in Erath County, uh, the voting system itself was not tied into a network. It was uh, a machine that processed it there and on site, and then that information was taken 
to the county courthouse at the end of the day. And so there are breaks in the system to keep that influence out. Uh, and we, we need that. We, we're, we're just in a day and age where we can't do it like we do our banking. But given that restriction, is it voter suppression if, like, closing the opening the polls later or not having 24-hour voting? I mean, to say, are there ways that we can facilitate this? And so that I think that's a, a question in looking at, at it from your perspective in terms of how elections and voting have, have developed in Texas and with the requirements and things that we have. To me, it seems like we need to continue down that path of, of – at least having some flexibility in certain areas where it does benefit people and giving them access to exercise their right to vote. Absolutely. Thank you. And I did want to speak to the way Erath County does their elections. I have interviewed some of those elections officials, and I've also talked to others across the state and in other states, actually. And what I have found is they are really focused on doing a good job. You know, they want to follow the law and they want to allow everybody a chance to vote within that law. And so I I do I applaud them for what they're doing. Also, here in Texas and in Erath County, we have the paper trail with our ballots. So you're right. You know, it's not connected to a greater system. But we also have this if there's a question, we've got those paper ballots that we insert into the machine and right so that we'd have that backtrack for us if we need it. So so that is good. Um, just from living in an urban county most of my life, you know, I'm really enjoying living here, but in an urban county, you have some challenges if you cannot get around very well. And so people who don't have a car often struggle to find a ride to work or um, to vote or to even go register to vote, get the voter ID that they need, because our mass transportation is, is not really strong in many of our urban areas. We have some. But um, nothing that provides a lot of assistance to people who have disabilities, maybe, or who are older, who have a hard time getting to the polls. And another thing that's happened in Texas is we've closed quite a few of the neighborhood polling locations that we used to have in favor of voting centers. So voting centers make it easier for those of us who do have transportation because we know exactly where we need to go on voting day. And so that's, that's a great But for people who don't have transportation, it increases the distance for them getting to the polls. And so there's been some research done, a scholarly research that has found that uh, using voting centers does diminish the turnout for certain populations in urban areas. So this is a concern. So, yeah, we could have the one size fits all like uh, Governor Abbott proclaimed that there's only one place where you could return your absentee ballots during the election in 2020, even though Harris County and Travis County had opened various places where they could go drop off their ballots. He he closed those with a proclamation. So there's just one place in that whole county that you could go. So this I see this is an issue at the federal level. Voting rights is a protected fundamental right, even more so than public education here in Texas. It seems like we spend a lot of energy and time and resources making sure that we're meeting the need of every one of our public education students to the best of our resources ability. But it doesn't seem like voting, in a way, has that much of a priority. If you're looking at bills such as Senate Bill 7, it's like we're going to kind of close the door a little bit and structure these elections, which, you know, it can lead to more voter um, election integrity, but then I think it also can lead to voter suppression. Right. So I think this is where the politics, right, has, mm-hmm. has bled over into something that should be uh, given attention based on data and based on what the needs are across the state, given that we have a very diverse state. Also, too, that we have not seen widespread fraud or even isolated cases. I mean, here and there, there are things that come up, but but not at the level to impact the outcome of an election. And this shows that, okay, there are vulnerabilities. How do we address those and so on? Or there are people who do not take their job as, as an administrator uh, in the way that they should. And, and again, very isolated cases here. So it seems to me that we would be on that, that path to exploring ways in which we could facilitate voting. Uh, But now this has become so political. We've already talked about what happened with the presidential election and its impact. Uh, 
turning that here to, to Texas, so the session ends, the law is in the House, the Democrats leave, so there's no House version that comes through, even though it passed in the Senate, governor wanted to sign it. Um, he brings it up now as a possible issue for a special session. We've not heard any more about that. Uh, to me, this is like politics, if you want to say at its best, maybe, <laughs> in that, that it is very political, right? It's, it's being now used as, a, as very much a, a political issue uh, that may connect to other things, other issues uh, that uh, are used to bargain for special sessions. That's what we know happens with the governor deciding what gets on the agenda. And then we know we have one in the fall on redistricting. And wow, if this thing is still around, then uh, that could be uh, challenging as well. Now, there are political benefits that could ha- that could help both sides in that kind of uh, bargaining over redistricting. So, I mean, we'll have, have to look at that. But uh, but to me, and I, I don't know, on, on, from your perspective, then is do you, do you see that this is now kind of fully in the realm of politics, much more than it is in actually looking at how we can administer elections that provide that access, right, to as many people as possible to exercise the right to vote. Hmm. Absolutely, <laughs> it's very political. Yet I also think there's room for discussion. Mm-hmm. No, and uh, within, are we going to allow county elections officials some leeway in order to right. address? I mean, that could be talked about. There are a lot of things that could be talked about. Could we offer public transportation to people who need it to the polls? You know, could there are various ways that we could. Could we actually let people bring their absentee ballots to more than one place within a large county with a huge? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there, there are other ways that we could be talking about this. So. Yes, in that regard, I think it, it is political because we're not talking about other options so much. Although, you know, I think they did as the bill went back and forth between the Senate and the House. And of course, they had the conference committee. And so now this voting on the conference committee bill was what ultimately failed in the House. There are just other options that are not being discussed. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and the, the other thing, too, is uh, to me, this is a transitional issue government state government across the country and and especially in texas the the level of of transparency uh over time has increased the uh professionalism right i mean we we can look back on the history of the state and we can see that state governments in the issues that the federal government had to step in major issues in terms of applying the constitution uh, that has pushed states along a, a line that have addressed some of those foundational issues. And to me, this is, is like one of those issues that has the vestiges of the past right, in terms of, of voting and how that's uh, managed or controlled by the state. And then looking ahead, because our election administrators, for the most part, I mean, it, there's a level of training. Uh, I'm not, I haven't looked into enough. I don't know if there's certification required that they have to, to have. But they uh, uh, they have to have a, a high level of training and there's a high level of reporting and transparency on their part as well. Uh, and it, it to me, it's a shame to see across the state in some areas where they're getting drug into political mm-hmm. discussions. Right. Something happened that was wrong. We don't know what it was, but the outcome of the election was not what we wanted. OK, well, our history in this country is. We didn't get the outcome we wanted in this election, so we accept that, and then we work toward that outcome in the next election. We don't start bringing people in front of a tribunal and saying, okay, this didn't turn out the way we wanted it to. What did you do wrong? You know, the fault lies somewhere, right? And part of that is driven by voters who are people who are so partisan in this as well that say, well, something had to happen, right? And so they're responding to their constituents in that way. Uh, To me, that's dangerous ground because we're moving this so much into a political realm and, and less into how do we do this fairly, effectively engage people in exercising their right to vote and do it within reason, right? Because there are a lot of options, but we can't afford to do everything. Mm-hmm. But it seems that we're at a point where we could allow some flexibility in counties to be able to manage their elections in a way that stay within the law, right? The, the, the broader boundaries that have been set by the law, but facilitate voting, uh, but 
again, as I come back to it, that's not where the discussion is. It's 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 mired right now in all of this. And and on the one hand, I'm hoping it doesn't come back up. I don't know about you. I I it, I sense that it will because it is a huge bargaining chip when it comes to some of the things that the legislature could address in a special session or even as we move toward redistricting. Uh, so I think it will be there. I don't think it's going to go away just yet until we get through another election cycle and see how the, all this actually works. I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on that in terms of where this may fall or, or what. <laughs> I don't, well, of course, it was one of Governor Abbott's items for mm-hmm. emergency legislation, which moves that up to the top of the legislative agenda. Right. And it was also our lieutenant governor's on his list as well. So both of them feel, you know, feel like this is important. And of course, Governor Abbott said after the session ended and we didn't pass this bill that he was going to call a special session. I mean, so obviously there's an importance that's being put on changing the policy to an extent. Um, going back to what you said earlier about how this is going towards a path that I'm not sure we need to go down in a way, and that, yes, yes, we need to have transparency, we need to have oversight, poll watchers, fine, let's put them there, that's all good. This partisan, if you will, questioning of the legitimacy of the election is very concerning to me, because then if we question the legitimacy of our elections, where does that lead us? So, right. yeah, uh, that makes me nervous. It does. Yeah, it does me, too, because that could come from either side mm-hmm. going forward Absolutely. in the future. And uh, and we're already seeing the impact of that on, on some very critical issues we need to deal with. Well, we'll have to get to those issues in another show uh, because we are out of time uh, for this episode of On Politics. And I want to thank you. Marcy, for joining us today and for this kind of deep dive into looking at uh, this proposed election laws. And and I will welcome you back in the future. We've got other topics we can address as well. But thank you today for joining us for this edition of On Politics. Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Brianna Blanks. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.